please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. So we're finally finished with Jonah. Uh, This morning we'll be beginning the book of Philippians. Uh, But before we turn there, let us turn to the beginning of our Bibles. I think that's found in page 2, if you're using the Pew Bible. I'll be reading Genesis 1, um, the last verse, 31 through the second chapter, the first three verses. Uh, Beloved people of God, this is God's holy, infallible, and abiding word. Give your full attention to it. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation." Let's turn now to Philippians. We're reading the first 11 verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Grass withers, flowers fade, But the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to start with big picture stuff before we get to our passage. 
the Philippian congregation was a Christ-believing community under pressure. Uh, as a young congregation, they struggled to live in a pagan society, a society they were once so deeply connected to. Uh, but now, uh, there are targets on their backs. They have become uh, targets of hostility and persecution from the outside world. But not only did they struggle to live under pressure, under the pressure of a pagan society, they also struggled to live with each other uh, because there were all kinds of different people in this church. They were multi-ethnic, multi-culture, multi-everything. You can imagine how hard it is to get along with so many different kinds of people. I mean, isn't this the world we find ourselves in? There's the struggle from the outside, and there's the struggle from the inside. So how does our community live under this kind of pressure then? Uh, We find the answer in the heart of this letter, and that's in chapter 2. Paul says, we must become like Jesus, the one who took on the form of a servant and suffered the brutality of the cross. But in so doing, he was highly exalted. That's Paul's answer to our common struggle, our struggle from the outside and the inside. And that's what Philippians is all about. It's a call to live like Jesus under pressure until Jesus' messianic identity is formed in our community. Uh, So that's the big picture, and we'll continue to reflect on that in the coming sermons. But what I want to draw out in our passage is the potential anxiety we might have from the pressure of living in this world and living in a community centered around Jesus and who He is. I mean, how do we know it's going to be, uh, it's going to turn out for our good? How do I know the pressure won't get the best of me? I don't know if you're like me, um, but do you ever start something and not finish it? Men, I'm talking to you, husbands, right? Uh, Sometimes I get excited about something and quickly give up. Um, Some of you know that I've been drawing a portrait of my wife. I started off pretty strong. Now it's just sitting there, unfinished. I feel like it's taunting me every time I look at it. I really need to put it away. You know, it just keeps looking at me. It's unfinished. (laughs) I think sometimes when we look at ourselves... And we see so many things unfinished about ourselves. We question whether God is even at work in us. And so we need to hear this message in Philippians this morning. That God will finish the good work that He has started in you. God will finish the good work He has started in you. And we'll look at the text in three movements. Uh, One, serving in humility Two, partaking in grace. And three, growing in love. So there's that humility, grace, and love. And so one work that God is doing in us is to cultivate humility. And that's what we see in Paul's greeting here in the first two verses. Uh, Paul introduces himself along with Timothy 
it's worth noting what Paul doesn't say. Uh, normally, he introduces himself as an apostle. Here's my credential. I'm an apostle. He does that forcefully, especially with the Galatians, right? Because he's on the defensive. But he doesn't do that here. Paul is not on the defensive. So he doesn't, he doesn't assert his status as an apostle. Instead, he uses a very humble description for himself and Timothy. He refers to themselves as servants or, or slaves. He's saying, me and Timothy, we're not our own. We belong to someone else. We belong to our Savior, Jesus. Uh, you see, Paul and Timothy are Jesus' servant. And I think uh, Paul is setting the tone for the letter by describing uh, themselves in this way. And here's what I mean. Serving in humility is part of reflecting Jesus to the world uh, because it's a reenactment of the gospel story that Jesus w- uh, would not assert his high status to his advantage, but he humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant, a lowly slave. And see, Paul is embodying the life of his Lord by calling himself and Timothy as slaves. And this is why he can say later on in the letter, Brothers, join in imitating me. I mean, how many of us can say that? Imitate me. Uh, Don't imitate me. Let's imitate Paul and the Lord, Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul continues his greeting to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Uh, Do you see what's strange? Uh, While Paul doesn't mention his own title as an apostle, he uses titles to refer to the Philippians. In fact, these few titles are dignified titles. right? Paul calls the Philippians the holy ones. Uh, That's the word... Saints, that's what it means, holy one. And I think we, we tend to take that title lightly sometimes, you know. Saints, maybe it's uh, the influence of the Catholic Church that, that uses the word so extremely. But we shouldn't take it flippantly. This is an important term. Uh, because it's a signal to the world that something amazing has happened. If you just look in the Hebrew Scriptures, holy ones or saints was, a, it was a, an exclusive title for Israel. Non-Jews were never called saints in the Old Testament. But now, Paul says, you are saints. Outsiders like the Philippians have come to share in that identity. Right? That is amazing. For 4,000 years or more, no one was called a saint except for those in Israel. But now, outsiders share in that very identity. It's a dignified title. And even more, Paul acknowledges the leaders in this congregation. He calls them the overseers and the deacons. And by the way, an overseer is just another name for an elder. And like saints... Overseers and deacons, those are titles of dignity. And again, I think Paul is setting things up here. 
Because what is he doing by using dignified titles for them? Well, Paul is esteeming them above himself. And so we see Paul willing to lay down his own status. He's getting low for the sake of others, for the sake of lifting, lifting them up. So, so this is really congruent with his very instruction to them in chapter 2 where he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Just that simple gesture of using their titles and lowering himself shows that. He's giving them an example of the humility he wants to instill in them. And then Paul presses this call to humility as he closes his greeting with something very familiar. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And how does that lead to humility? Well, when you know that grace and peace comes from God and not from yourselves, and that you don't earn your status before Him, that should humble you. You don't, you don't get where you are because you're so good. It's because God has given you grace and He's given you peace. That should humble you. And this leads to another work that God is doing in us, uh, which is our second point, partaking in grace. Uh, Paul continues to show his servant status to God in prayer. He tells them, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And it's actually a little ambiguous here in the Greek because it's not certain who's doing the remembering. So you could really translate it like this. I give thanks to my God upon all your remembrance of me. Right? It's not clear who's doing the remembering. But I think it's ambiguous for a reason. Why? Because they're both true. Paul was constantly remembering the Philippians Paul had them, uh, Paul had all this time to think, right? He's in prison. What else do you do in prison but to think and remember and reflect? And this is one of the congregations he, he planted, he started. How can they not be in his remembrance, right? It's only right that he would be thinking of them. You know, how are they doing without me? Are they growing? What's happening in there? Uh, But for the Philippians, Paul was also constantly in their thoughts. In fact, they were probably anxious about him all the time. How's our guy doing? How's our boy doing, you know? Is he okay? How are the guards treating him? Is he eating? When's he getting out? What if we practiced what Paul and the Philippians are doing here? What if we prayed for each other every time we remembered each other? You know, when I remember people, I don't tend to pray for them. Sometimes, uh, more often than not, I criticize. I, I, I think about uh, what they're going through. But I hardly pray for them. And I know this is hard to do. But what if our prayer life is more robust than it is now? I wonder what would happen uh, when we remember people, we pray for them. I mean, don't you think that will change us? 
the way we feel about people, about, about each other. You see, this mutual remembrance shows the kind of relationship they had. Uh, Paul and the Philippians had this deep partnership. But why was it so good? Because it was based on something enduring. Listen to what Paul said in verse 5. He says, Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You see, their together, togetherness is based on the gospel. Based on good news outside of themselves. Uh, let me just say, that's the deepest relationship or partnership you can ever have. One that is based on the gospel. Maybe I'm stepping on toes a little bit here. But if your deepest relationships are not based on the gospel, they're not deep enough. Don't, don't mishear me. Having relationships with people out there is good. But if their deepest, your deepest relationships are out there and not in here, they're not deep enough. Because those relationships are not enduring if they're not in accordance with the gospel. Uh, but here's the thing about Paul and the Philippians' partnership in the gospel. Their partnership in the gospel was more than just mere platitude. This gospel partnership took a particular shape for them. From the first time Paul planted this congregation to his imprisonment, they have supported him. Through thick and thin, they were there for him. And not just some moral support either. They assisted him with recurring gifts in prison. And by the way, this congregation was not rich. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 that they were extremely poor. Yet, what do we see? This congregation gave out of their great joy and generosity for Paul. And so for Paul, their giving was more than just a nice gesture. It was confirmation that God was at work in them. Because the gospel of Jesus meant that much to them. They were willing to open up their pockets and give for the cause of the gospel. They were willing to give out of their poverty for the sake of the gospel, gospel going forth. So let me just encourage us in our giving for a moment. What if our giving was shaped after the Philippians' giving? What if we were driven to give out of joy and generosity, joy that God uses them to further His kingdom? Generosity because we have been shown generosity. What does that say about God's work among us? But here's the thing. Paul's confidence is ultimately not in their doing. Not because they gave. It's not even in his doing. His confidence is in God. Because he knows who God is. So he says in verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's a God who never starts something just to give up. I like how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 138. 
The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. You see, that's Paul's unshakable hope. That God will never forsake the work of His hands. And he knows, without a shadow of a doubt, that God is at work in them. I mean, isn't the first thing we learn about God, isn't this it? That He finishes what He starts, right? Remember our Hebrew Scripture reading earlier. Uh, Listen to some of it again and kind of see the correlation between our passage and, and, and this. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good, right? Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. God is in the business of finishing what He starts, and that includes you. That's Paul's certainty and hope for the Philippians. That's his hope for you. In fact, God has prepared these good works for you. And He intends to finish them. Here's what he says in Ephesians 2. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God knows God is doing something in you. He's doing the good work and He has foreordained that you should walk in them. I mean, no wonder Paul prayed with so much joy here. He knows something so good. Because when you truly believe that God is faithful, you will pray with joy. Joy says, God alone, He's the one who keeps faith. And completes the good work he started. That even when things don't seem to be taking shape, God is going to finish what he started in you. I mean, this is why we should be so eager to encourage one another, you know, to do good works, to live in those good works that God has prepared for us. I mean, did you know? It's one of the reasons why we meet every Sunday, to encourage one another for good works. Listen to the writer to the Hebrews. He says, And let us consider to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so my question is, are you doing that? Are you doing that? Do you come to encourage others in the good work that God is doing in them and in you? I mean, I know I can do, be, I can do better. What about you? Paul's joy was in line with the way he felt about them in his heart. Paul, his head over heels about them. His compassion for them ran deep. Uh, verse 7 It's only right I feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. It didn't matter what was happening to Paul, whether he was outside preaching the gospel or whether he was in prison bearing witness of the gospel. It didn't matter to this congregation. 
Their financial support never stopped. It continued while other congregations stopped. In their generosity, in some mysterious way, the Philippians participated in what Paul was doing. I think this is why Paul says, For you are all partakers with me of grace. Because while he was defending and confirming grace to the world in his ministry, it is as if it were this congregation was with him. They were participants in, in what he was doing. That's why Paul loved this church. He held them dear in his heart. And even more, Paul calls for God to bear witness of how he feels about them and how much he longed for them. Uh, remember, Paul here is a slave in service of his Lord. And so he adds, I yearn for you all with the affection of the Messiah Jesus. In other words, in Paul's longing for them stands Jesus' very compassion for them. Isn't that wonderful? The picture is this. It's the Master sending His servant His love to them. Paul is a conduit of Jesus' love. And this is why later Paul says, For me to live is Christ. What if our affection for each other was like that? Uh, Because let me tell you, it's not enough that we tolerate each other. Our Our culture preaches toleration everywhere. It's not enough that we just tolerate each other. Simply tolerating each other doesn't say anything about Jesus to the world. Because the world does that. But when we deeply love each other as Jesus' community, then those around us, I think, will begin to notice. Then they will see the compassion of Jesus to this broken world. Listen to what Jesus says in John 13. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, that you follow me, if you have love for one another. That's the evidence that Jesus is at work among us, that we love each other, that we feel strongly and passionately about each other. So are we known for love for God and each other, or do we just tolerate each other? And for this reason, I think Paul prays that their love would grow. And this brings us to our last point, uh, growing in love. I think what Paul prays in these next few verses is a huge challenge for us. He says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. For Paul, love is both knowledgeable and discerning. And discerning. Uh, this knowledge is not just some general knowledge, uh, like how to budget your finances or how to cook from a recipe. And it has more to do with spiritual knowledge, the kind of knowledge that is revealed to us in the Bible. Knowledge about God and who He is and who we are in Him. That's the kind of knowledge, uh, love, uh, that's the kind of love that Paul wants us to have, one that is spiritually knowledgeable. 
But love is not merely spiritually knowledgeable. Love is not just about learning facts in the Bible. Love is also discerning. And this is not the same thing as this knowledge. Discernment here is about exercising wisdom. It takes that spiritual knowledge that we have learned and puts them into practice in a way that puts others above ourselves. That shows that we are willing to go low for the sake of others. You see, you can't have one without the other. Love seeks to learn, and it seeks to exercise wisdom. And that's how you really test what is good and what is excellent. You learn from God's Word, and you put them into practice the best you can. Uh, Let me just say another thing about this type of love. Um, It's always growing. Did you notice what Paul said? That your love may abound more and more. In other words, love is not static. Because we're not static. Our capacity to love and for love is always growing. Listen, love can be stunted. It can be malnourished. If you don't acknowledge that you need to grow in it, if you think it's something you don't need to work on, then your vision for what love is is too small. I mean, imagine a husband and a wife saying, you know, we got this whole love thing figured out. We don't need to work on it anymore. What would happen? But why does Paul want their love to grow? It's so that they might be pure and blameless on the day that Jesus comes back. Paul wants, the, uh, wants them to one day be completely pure and blameless. That's another way of saying that Paul wants them to look like Jesus, the Lamb of God who was pure and blameless. Uh, uh, let me guess what you're thinking at this point. right? Really, Paul? Pure and blameless? Do you even know me, Paul? You don't know what I'm like when nobody's looking. I can't go one day without messing up. Pure and blameless, Paul? If you're thinking that, if you're thinking this is impossible, then you're right. It is impossible. This is why Paul says this is a righteous fruit that comes through Jesus Christ. Paul knows that this goal is impossible. So Paul doesn't put it on our shoulders. He places it on the one who can carry it. The one with whom all things are possible. Uh, This means this is not ultimately our work. We're just along for the ride in what Jesus Christ is doing in us. It only comes through Jesus, the Messiah. It's His work, not ours. And one day he uh, He will bring it to completion. And when we realize this, what happens? We can't boast in ourselves. We can't boast in our doing. And that's why Paul says it is to the glory and praise of God. We boast in Him and what He has done. If you know Jesus Christ this morning, then you know He always finishes what He starts. He doesn't 
start something just to get bored and quit. He came as the humble servant of God who came to serve and not be served. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was, marked, he was mocked and scorned. He suffered under the hands of brutal men on that cross so that on that cross you might hear those most comforting words. Remember what Jesus said on that cross? It is finished. It is finished. Redemption accomplished for you. Jesus finishes what He starts. Uh, This morning, do you ever feel depressed and dejected because you're constantly coming up short? Coming up short in your sanctification. You keep failing in the school of humility, grace, and love because your sin just keeps getting the best of you. Or maybe it just seems like God is doing in you, what God is doing in you is never going to be finished. I want to remind you, don't forget, it's not God's MO to give up. He is faithful even when you're not. Stop trying to take over the good work that God has started in you by trying to finish it yourself. Look to Jesus because you are His work. And he will, he will finish what He has started in you. This table set before us this morning is a reminder of God's finished work. That Jesus came to finish the work of redemption for all of us. Not in part, but the whole. The bread and the, and the wine are visible signs that Jesus finished His mission of redemption. I want to read this little passage from John 19. think is very pertinent to the table this morning and Jesus finishing his work. I listen to John 19 verse 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That's what these elements are. They are, the finish, they are symbolic of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So come... And drink and eat and rest in the finished work of the Messiah. It is finished. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'd like to invite Pastor Brett and the elders to come and serve us this finished table. Please join me in prayer. Our gracious God, you are so good and so kind. You have modeled humility in sending your Son into this world to save us, and you have called us to humility. You have shown us great kindness beyond measure, and you have called us to love others as you have loved us. So, Father, we ask that you would write these things on our hearts that you would make us more and more like Jesus. 
Father, we pray that you would take all these truths we have heard in the book of Philippians and seen at your table, and that you would help us to see that this is our life in Christ. Help us to be humble, to show grace, to show love, because you have been humble, you have shown us grace, and you have shown us love. We pray these things through Christ our Savior. Amen.